Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 43 of Spoken Word with Electronics. We're figuring out some equipment and just doing a quick sound test. We're figuring out right now just a sound test on this equipment. This is a test. This is a test. Oh, wow. Okay, so it is limited to that. Okay, I'm just going to go with trusting trusting what I'm hearing here. And what I'm seeing in the... Gain with that. It seems like if we, yeah, cut that down. And we don't want to overdo it. We can just record. We can just record. Got the backup here going. It's certainly nice. I guess if we're curious, we can listen to the backup. And this will probably give us a uh, good idea of what we're recording. So it's a good comfort to hear the backup. Hi, everybody. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to episode 43 of Spoken Word with Electronics. Nice week this week. It's always a nice week. It's a good way to look at weeks. Or rather, uh, regardless of how a week is going, I'm pleased when it's over. (laughs) It would be tough for me to not say nice week, but a good week to everybody, one and all. Just sitting here uh, figuring out some new mic techniques always work on the mic techniques. I have not perfected all of them. <laughs> so uh, one, of, one of the things that I've done uh, during the pandemic is uh, my wife and I have watched The, uh, the Crown. I've never seen that show. I never really... The, uh, the season that I saw that everyone was excited about was season four, and that was not something that I was terribly excited about the love affair with uh, Diana and Charles and I was like whatever I don't really need to see a reenactment of that but people would tell me that you know you gotta check out the beginning the first few seasons instead which uh, talks about the uh, the royal family and for all the pop culture and weird history that I've ever uh enjoyed getting to know about i didn't know anything about that uh that david guy that king (laughs) the abdicating king and so it has been a joy to see how screwed up all that is that's been a lot of fun what a lousy narcissistic crazy pampered brat and then you find out about his connections to the nazis and everything and he's just a mess he's the worst human Testing, one, two, three, testing. Oh, look at that top T. It's kind of amazing. Okay, we're going for a mic check here and just checking on how levels are looking and I'm making sure also that this thing is working and it seems to be. It's often fun just seeing how this might work. sounds like I've got something crinkly in my pocket. I don't have anything crinkly in my pocket. My pockets are empty. Ever hear crinkles in your... in your pockets? And your pockets are empty? It's never happened to me, but it's happening tonight. I uh, just moved my arm 
which is not something you want to do when you're recording. You don't want to move your arm. Uh, there's a couple, I tend to hold the microphone in my hand, which limits what kinds of mics I can work with. But I prefer a handheld mic for a number of reasons, although you can get some handheld ribbons and some other stuff, so it definitely is improved. But I don't like uh, having a fixed beam mic at all, no matter how nice the microphone. But so there's two or three things you can't do when you're holding a mic. You get a lot of mobility while you're holding a microphone while you're talking. But you can't do a couple things because they sound a little weird, as for certainly the people who don't know what you're hearing. One is you can't, uh, I'll just do my knee. You can't rub your, uh, a lot of people have a compulsion to sort of like rub their leg while they're talking or something. You can't do that because that sounds very peculiar. What the fuck is he doing there with that? This is bad ASMR. <laughs> Somebody doing like that. Uh, you uh, can't scratch your face because now you think that I got a weird scratchy face and you can't put bubble wrap in your pockets but for whatever reason okay now it seems like I have gotten rid of it but I just did like a uh, weird test I was like do I, have, do I have bubble wrap in my pocket This episode of Spoken Word with Electronics is brought to you by Bresky Mastering. Based in Berlin and available to experimental musicians worldwide, Bresky Mastering is a human-based music improvement service specializing in finalizing your mixes. The weirder or more wonderful your work, the better. Visit VereskyMastering.com. That's V-A-R-E-S-C-H-I Mastering.com for more information. In any normal scenario, that wouldn't make any sense as to how I would have bowler wrap in my pocket. But as I haven't really done anything regarding uh, leaving the house for any uh, packaging need, or any need whatsoever beyond just survival for food and things like that. The likelihood of me having bubble wrap in my pocket right now is an extremely low bet. You know, high odds. <laughs> if I were a hedge fund manager or an investor and I was uh, wanting to do a short stock on my pants, I would undervalue them for their likelihood of having bubble wrap in their pockets man I just can't stand uh, hedge fund people or stockbrokers or whatever so the last few weeks uh, really of watching this GameStop stuff has been yeah I've been a spectator I haven't been putting any money into it I like GameStop I haven't bought a physical video game in years Meaning I just download it like everyone else. But I love stopping in at the GameStop store. You know, another uh, undervalued, slaughtered by hedge fund people company was Radio Shack. And I would buy from Radio Shack. If I were buying some bubble wrap, perhaps to put in my pants for a, a night of recording, uh, Radio Shack probably would have a whole uh, cabinet in the store that had different gauges of bubble wrap and other things. It's so long as there was an electronic use. So they probably would have the static free bubble wrap. That red bubble wrap that you'll get with uh, circuit boards or something when you get them in the mail. And I would feel every time I passed by a, a Radio Shack that, you know, I should give them just a little money, just sort of spiritually say to Radio Shack every time I pass them uh, that I want them to stick around. And so I would just always go and get like an accessory if I passed a Radio Shack. I'd go in, I'd buy like uh, a quarter inch adapter for headphones or something like that. And just be like, hey, you know, like I, I'm happy that you guys are around because I have a lot of real deep history with Radio Shack. And when Radio Shacks disappeared, it really sucked. And I can feel a similar emotional resonance for a lot of people with GameStop. I 
know that people sort of discount the value of nostalgia, but nostalgia can also point towards when things had a higher quality of something. You know, it doesn't always mean to be that they're just thinking back to something and it becomes rosier looking back. The fact of the matter is the more America cares about money, the less these memories will be available to you. Because a lot of times, like the game stops that are disappearing or Radio Shack going away or a bookstore or a, uh, you know, a real hardware store, not a Lowe's or Home Depot, but at the home, the, you know, the local hardware store or, you know, just pick it. Those things are disappearing and it does mean for a less authentic real experience. And so people were talking about like GameStop as, uh, you know, I sort of saw GameStop as a protest moment for a number of things. And one of them was just sort of defending the quality of life. And I would, and I know that when GameStop actually appeared, it was replacing, you know, mom and pop video store, video game stores. So it's really not like defending Andy Griffith or something. You know, they're not taking Mayberry away by uh, shorting, uh, by squeezing out GameStop. And I've been watching GameStop slowly disappear, you know, for years. I know it's a failed idea right now. And I rewatched this happened to Radio Shack, you know. But them not being there in like the diorama of the world sucks, you know. I mean, the so in Austin we have a strip of street along the western edge of campus, all the way going north and north and south. It's called the Drag, and it's a part of a street that <laughs> any human would call Guadalupe, but. In Austin, they pronounce it Guadalupe. Don't even get me started on, on Austin streets because uh, that, that's a, a bit of insanity that we have with pronunciations. Um, it's kind of like when you go to Kentucky, there's a very wonderful city in Western Kentucky I've been to for, uh, uh, for a number of fun reasons. And any person would look at it and call it Versailles but it's for sales and they'll correct you. <laughs> it's a good way to know if you know where you are, if you call it Versailles. Anyway, stuff like that. But on the Guadalupe street of Austin, it is called the drag for the portion of it that borders the University of Texas campus. And the history of that street as sort of like a business space is really cool. For so many years, the drag was full of so many interesting pieces of culture. There were tons of bookstores, independent and used bookstores. There was oddly a uh, pornographic theater right in front of the, uh, the actual school. There was a ton of arcades and there were a bunch of really great used bookstores. And most notably, it had a really interesting punk history, too. Uh, there was a place called Sound Exchange, which is world famous for a spray-painted Hi, How Are You picture by Daniel Johnston on the side of it. And all those places are now gone. Even the Sound Exchange. The only things that survive on the drag really to make money are ones that can cover rent. So it's just food restaurants and corporate places like banks or other things. And it's all because rent or just emphasizing money has destroyed this really vibrant street. I mean, it was really cool. Just a wonderful spot. And the emphasis on money has destroyed it to just be a place where you have clothing and expensive clothing at that or boutiques sometimes, but most places fail. The bookstores failed, the music stores failed. Uh, there was a, a Tower Records that was even interesting, and it was surrounded by by nice spray paint uh, murals of local artists. All these things failed, and now the drag is just a really hot sidewalk with a weird Scientology building, which of course will never go away, and very bizarre 
Artifacts of its past, for example, the Hi How Are You mural by Daniel Johnston did survive, but it's now surrounded in a wood uh, frame connected to its new building, which is no longer Sound Exchange, the perfect punk uh, music store. It's now a Thai restaurant, and the Thai restaurant has made a bastard of that beautiful Daniel Johnston mural, and the Thai restaurant is called Thai How Are You? Stuff like that is what happens when money is more important than culture. It's really sad. Ty, how are you? None of it is available to you now when you visit it, with the exception of one existing really neat barber shop. And, uh... I'm really not sure what else. I'm just walking up the drag right now and trying to find something... Oh, there's one good coffee shop. And I keep on, I'm walking by, going up. Walk, I've, I've, I haven't walked it since March of last year, but like I walked it for decades, so I'm keeping on walking up. Now that place just closed. There was, okay, but close enough that I'll say it. There was one good Indian food restaurant. And there was... Okay, I'm kind of getting up to the north of it. North Edge or Dean Keaton, kind of where I'll stop. And then and then Caddy Corner to a couple of blocks up is one is probably the best coffee shop in, in Austin, but it's now gone, apparently. Very sad. Spider House is a uh, coffee shop. That might not survive because of the pandemic, but that doesn't really apply because businesses naturally win and lose or, or uh, succeed or don't. But going south, back down the drag, as these companies have been pushed out of the drag or failed, they've been replaced by these sorts of hedge fund type things. These look good on paper, can afford the rent, boring, you know, like three banks. And it keeps on getting worse. A bank moves into a good space all the time. And then it just becomes sort of like uh, frozen property on that street. It's not like a grocery store moving into a street. And being useful for the community. Banks certainly can be useful as for loans and everything. But, you know, if it's a grocery store, you go into it every day. If it's a bank, you go in for that loan once a, <laughs> once a decade or once every five years. They don't need to permanently be located on a street. Or if you needed to use it for daily deposits and everything, that's fine too. But they, that's becoming more and more digital anyway. You know, the, the idea of a physical bank, other than filling out contracts or mortgages or something. But it doesn't really serve the community the way other things do, the way like bookstores do or whatever. But the drag used to be before this, before the idea that a business had to make money to survive, there was an idea that a part of a town would have low rent for businesses intentionally. And this was sort of a society agreement, the same way that there is cheaper personal rent for, you know, but a business rent always keeps on going up quicker than personal rentals you know like a personal rental can find like a really cheap place in a nice neighborhood and it's the dingiest place in the neighborhood but he can get the cheap he or she can get the cheap rent there if you have a piece of shit you know funny idea like i just want to have a store called uh uh plastic pancakes and you go in there and it's just uh you know there's some nice music and there's some chairs and there's some pretty cool people, and none of them are really trying to kill you, you know, with competition or whatever. But you just go, like, and they don't really need you to buy anything either. They're just cool. Hey, how you doing? And you can just walk up and be like, hey, can I get a plastic pancake? And they uh, they might go, yeah, here we go. I need it to be 80 cents. And you'd sit down with your plastic pancake and pick up a book and just sort of enjoy yourself. And the music would change throughout the day, and you'd see people come in, get their plastic pancakes. 
Sometimes somebody would come in, buy something more than a plastic pancake. But it didn't really matter because the rent was so cheap on a place like this. And it was cool, you know. I mentioned the one surviving coffee shop on the drag. It is a business when you walk in there. There is a display case of high dollar food items that you are highly uh, encouraged to buy along with the kombucha bottles. Um, the music is a little bit more aggressive because it needs to sort of be like that place to study. So there's kind of like a you are in a you are in a location sound that you didn't get at the plastic pancake <laughs> store that didn't give a shit. You know, um, I'm being metaphorical. <laughs> but. What value does a person in finance give to the world? I mean, somebody in stocks or just is focused on making money for themselves. That's it. End point. Not good people working in finance, but just your investor guy, your your guy who's I'm going to just make money. That's it. And they think that they're powerful and intelligent and capable because of this. What work are they doing for? anyone other than themselves. And I'm sure you could say, well, I'm an investor. I'm an angel investor. But why do these things require so much money? If you are an angel investor, I remember I, uh, one of the funniest experiences I have is working for the dot-com boom in a number of jobs. And that was super funny. And it has colored my perspective on the world particularly what it means to be an investor in something because when the dot-com stuff happened I was able to sort of grow into it so dot-com sort of appeared right as I got out of college I went to school at 90, 1993 to 90, 1997 in Chicago and right as we started there was the Netscape browser in like 92 or 93 and we had a Eudora email account and I got to enjoy, and I say this with some pride because it is, you know, it's like being there when radio started. There was other internet before this, but this is when like the internet really began. And I got to enjoy seeing the internet begin. And I worked for a couple dot-com companies who were at the time just looking at other websites and exploring the HTML source code and saying, let's do that. <laughs> That's what it took to be a, a web developer at the time. But I have some of the funniest experiences of watching the internet grow. Hold on. It's been 35 years since the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. The shuttle exploded 73 seconds after liftoff on January 28, 1986, killing all seven crew members on board. Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought about that. I was watching on the news. Uh, I hate to be so tangential today, but I'm tangential tonight. Uh, I got that bubble wrap in my pants <laughs> or my pocket. See, that changes one word. Even though I'm referring to the pant pocket, just saying if I got bubble wrap in my pants, my pants, you would not think my pants pocket. Why is that? Why is it that? Uh, I mean, it's very, you have to be hyper specific when pre referencing contents of something in your pants <laughs> especially if it's bubble wrap you need to indicate that it's in the pocket and the front pocket can be implied in that sense so if it's in your back pocket you might want to specify there I think it defaults to be front pocket when you say I've got bubble wrap in my pocket so if you have bubble wrap in your back pocket you would then have to say pant pocket so I think the way we go is if somebody says pants pants if I have something in my pants, it's, con <laughs> it's considered the parent item of the front pocket is the pants themselves, and that would have to mean the inside of the pants, so within the leg or the, uh, the, the space in between the legs or the legs. There would be, have to be something in those three areas. Most, you know, I, I think people rarely hide things on in their thigh, you know, over their thighs and their pants. So you could even further surmise the location of something for in my pants, right? In my pants.
but uh, then the child item, the first child item of uh, pants would be front pocket and it can be derived to be front pocket and then the child of that is the back pocket and I think that's the three places you can put things in your pants and so I put I mean I guess you could make like a pocket out of the cuffs if you were to roll them up but that would be uh, kind of silly and unnecessary so I think the, uh, the front pocket is where I would keep the bubble wrap but I wasn't wearing any bubble wrap on the day that the Challenger exploded I was just sitting in class and they uh, pulled us all into the computer lab and it was supposed to be a very fun moment to watch the Challenger lift off live on TV. <laughs> then the uh... then the space shuttle Challenger exploded. And I remember everybody being very, very, I don't remember, it's kind of like shock or panic. I don't remember the actual moment. That, that part was probably so horrifying that I've blocked out the actual moment. Not the visual, I remember seeing it visually, but I do not remember the reaction in the room. I don't remember my reaction. So that might be emotional shock. <laughs> perhaps a transitional moment where you are now going into a different state of consciousness where these things can occur you know they talk about innocence being lost by people this is probably a variant of that because I don't remember I mean I could uh, I, I can imagine people probably screamed or but for whatever reason it's just completely quiet and then some murmuring I'm vaguely remembering and then they turn off the TV <laughs> And they like don't know what to do. I got my, I got uh, the fourth and fifth grade teachers. They are just looking around, not knowing what to do. <laughs> and they, but anyway, I remember looking at the Apple II computers in the room, and then I remember catching a glimpse of my uh, my my parents' home in my uh, right eye. I was really lucky to have my parents' house walking distance from school and within view, actually, from the fourth grade window. And focusing just on that instead of anybody else. And it was a weird moment in my life because everybody also had somebody else that they could talk to about this. Like, oh my God, Bob, or oh my God, Jill, did you just see that? We both saw that. So everybody sort of pa paired off to talk about the, sh uh, the Challenger exploding. And I remember, as with many experiences at that time in my life, having nobody paired off to talk to me about the, about it nor was I able and so I just remember going around and trying to find somebody to talk to about it and I mean it felt really poisonous to just sort of like walk up and try and enter into a conversation I don't know was I 10 was it 84 let me look that up. Let me let me give you exact the exact age I was when uh, Challenger exploded because it's a good it's an important point. Eighty six, January eighty six. So I'm eleven. Later, so I'm I'm eleven and I'm starting to sort of resent <laughs> feeling lame about walking up to two people talking and not being welcomed into that ever so small group. You know, that ever so small group. Two is more than one. And so if two people are having a conversation and they are not, including you, don't even try saying some words to see if they'll catch them and pull them in. They, you know, that, that defines a group and I can't stand groups. <laughs> I did a show about batteries, not liking batteries, but I really dislike groups for this exact dynamic, which of course I dealt with a lot, which is you just then hover as the third person and it suddenly would become a really inclusive, bigger group if you were there included, but they're arbitrating sort of quietly as to whether or not to include you in that group, you know, and they usually do that by whatever energy they're sending out conversationally with one another. And uh, I, I don't mean to, I don't, I don't feel like I'm 
<laughs> intending to like be like, oh my God, you are fa that's fascinating. You really have figured out what it means to talk to two people. But it's a very weird energy feeling when you're 10 or 11 and you're trying to figure out the confusing riddle of all these people who get along with one another and you just not being included in any of their conversations. And so I remember, but what's funny about that is that even then that gave me access to better conversations the rejection of just like the group of kids at 10 or 11 years old and so everybody is just sort of talking in their own kid way like oh my gosh you know oh wow yeah oh my gosh that's pretty much the extent of as my memory is of them conversationally but i'm not being allowed into any of these conversations and my inclination, of course, is just to walk out the door to my parents' house. <laughs> so I go and I go to press the door to leave school just to walk to my parents' house because, I mean, I need to talk or I'm just, I'm fed up with this room. And somebody goes, hey, Ethan, what you doing? And I turn around and it's the, uh, the sixth grade teacher. I'm in fourth grade. And he's also in grief. And I end up being the only kid who gets to talk with the adult that day. He, he's uh, called me over because he, he's like, you know, and mentioned previously that he's kind of impressed the way that I talk. He's like, so what do you think you just saw just now? And his, his face is so full of pain. <laughs> and I go... For clarity, I go on the TV. <laughs> I remember wanting to give him the right answer. And, you know, I mean, because, and now I'm realizing with this memory that one other thing I could have said is, I, oh, I just saw a bunch of kids treat me, you know, be like monsters. I'll be talking. But anyway, he, he goes, yeah, and, he, and it's funny. It was a, enough of a line to kind of throw him out of grief for a second. He smiles and goes, yes, on the on the television are you okay <laughs> and uh so this is i'm realizing this is one of the earliest examples of me actually getting getting to getting the benefit of getting to know some really cool older person because of just my my feeling rejected by my current age group which has continued forever so instead i get the cool elder you know I mean, I love the fact that I've made really good friends of older people. A blessing of my life was getting to know Paul Krasner at the level that I did get to know Paul. And it's clearly because of, and he, I, it's a name drop, but it's one that I've earned. I really, I loved Paul. And Paul is just one of the people that are great elder people that I've been able to become friends with because I just wasn't stuck in the swamp of other people my age, you know. And so even though I'm 46 now, I still feel really young because, you know, my age group that I hang out with, I hang out with the 70 and the 80-year-old guys. <laughs> so I feel insecure when I talk to them and I'm 46 or something, you know. Sorry about laughing directly into the mic. But anyway, so I remember, I, you're probably more interested with the conversation about the school teacher on the day that September, he, the, I almost said September 11th, but the Challenger exploded. But yeah, so he goes, yeah, how did you feel about what you saw on the TV? And I remember saying, or feeling wanting to be profound at that moment too. So this was a very interesting kind of high awareness moment in my life. Because he asked me. I mean, I was I, I was clever enough or funny enough to be like, oh, you know, the TV. Yeah, I was. I just did. You mean when I look on the TV? But when he asked me how I was, I remember wanting to be a little over serious, and so I might have said something to the effect of, you know, like what we just saw was a tragedy, <laughs> you know, or whatever you want to say as a kid to be. And he'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And our, but and he goes, and, that, and do you have any questions or? How, how are you about it? And it sort of like evolved then into just sort of like teacher talks to the student. But I remember beaming with uh, comfort at that moment. And it was right after I'd been feeling so much hurt from these kids. Didn't 
walk out of school and walk to my parents' house. Although that was my inclination. Yeah. So I think when I was starting to recall that, when I, I think when I was starting to recall that, I was uh, talking about the local business, you know. Got some police outside. We listen kind of tight to this. But local business was never about covering rent, really, like it is now. And rent is, you know, and rent costs so much because investments, right? Just numbers on something change the value of it so that somebody who owns the store or the location has to charge a certain amount just to, just to rent it, you know. And that's because of valuation <laughs> and other terrible ideas, which are just numbers or concepts. You know, somebody into uh, finance would probably defend that much more aggressively and say like, well, no, it's not that. It's more than that. It's an investment. But really, I mean, it's just a damn number that somebody's put on the same location. You know, and it ruins what can go in those spaces because suddenly you can't have the plastic pancake store. You, uh, you need, which I, which I mean to say, you can't just have that coffee shop, coffee shop, coffee shop, coffee shop. The Challenger story was referring to the uh, Max. Macintosh computer stuff and oh I now recall exactly where I was heading with that is uh, the Apple IIs were in the room that I that when I saw the shuttle explode on TV and I remember other than the teacher that I spoke to when I was about to walk out the building and walk home um, illegally <laughs> Uh, just because it felt a lot more comfortable to be at home than being in this room full of assholes. We were just like not even including me in their shuttles conversations. Like, what the fuck am I going to do? I can't, you know, but everyone's saying like, wow, you know, they're just grunting around. They're just so confused and strange. But I have the nice conversation with the teacher instead. I was able to make him laugh, which felt very powerful. Make a crying authority figure laugh. It's a great feeling. I feel like you're capable of something in a very positive way. It's like a uh, beneficial or kind feeling of power. It's not like the uh, money feeling of power. Uh, the, the feeling of power that like some hedge fund motherfucker has. They don't live to tell a joke or make people laugh. So they don't know what kind of power that is, which I, it, it's a very different kind of thing. It's like, oh, that feels so good to make you feel good for a moment. But yeah, you and you feel a confidence with that. I can do that. That's a pretty positive strength, and that's a powerful feeling. Hedge fund people don't have that. So they have to feel the other power. I'm destroying you. Or I'm getting mine. You know, I mean, come on. You know you are. <laughs> you don't need all that money. Or that's the only thing that is. It's money. But anyway, I uh, was heading somewhere with all of this. <laughs> I'm having a lot of fun just sort of... This is stream of consciousness. And again, this is completely effing sober talking on week two or three of Biden. <laughs> and just the decompression of not being attacked every day with something new that should be considered criminal enough to like get this person gone but he's gone anyway so like I find myself my conversationally just unpacking a lot and this feels like kind of a funny I think I'm telling you six or seven stories at once right now <laughs> but I'm determined to end one of them the uh, I alluded at one point to the first time I ever got in the newspapers or something. I actually edited that out from this audio. I basically am talking about the first time I ever got in the paper making a David Koresh Waco collectible, and I'll tell you the story now about it. And it was during the 
Waco tragedy, which I now realize is a real tragedy for a number of reasons. But in my immaturity, I just, it was the first time I'd ever been exposed to a cult in the news. And that was fascinating to me and kind of funny. And I was going to, that's the extent of my personal or when people talk about being immature, that's my extent of being, you know, a teenager and not really understanding how fucked up Waco was. I just saw it as like a cult that burned down. This was during the same time that Heaven's Gate was happening too, so there was a lot of culting happening pre-internet. <laughs> Before the internet, if you wanted to get a lot of information on something, it was best for you to find a cult because you would find a lot of information about that cult at the cult. And that usually would come from the cult leader. He would tell you a lot about the cult and himself too. And so if you had a hunger for the information, if you had a level of hunger that equals, uh, I guess like I want to follow an Instagram account or something, or with before you had Instagram, you need to join a cult. And so there were a bunch of cults at the time. And, uh, or heck, if you wanted to have a lot of followers on Instagram, if you're one of those people, you probably thought, oh shit, I, I would like a lot of people to follow me. So you would have to actually start your own cult. It was a big problem. And so time has sort of <laughs> shredded that away. Um, I'm kidding about how many cults, but it was the it was the year, it was the time, and so I just thought it was funny. I don't even know why I'm explaining it. So one of the, you know what? Fuck it. I still think it's funny. So I had a uh, I had access to a Photostat camera, and I'm not gonna apologize for any of this. This is the first thing I ever did to get in the paper, because this is funny. So I had access to a Photostat paper, a camera, um, at my commercial art class that I was taking at high school. It was public school too. So people talk about public or private or taxation or something, but like the reason why is because there were some pretty good homes that fed into this entire school district. We didn't have many of those million dollar homes, but there were, were those in, in Aurora. And the school that got those taxes was able to get the commercial art program and I going to the less financially, you know, stacked school, but still a part of the same district was able to request to go to that class and I got approved. And so that was amazing. So I would go every day to get my commercial art degree and learn Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop and uh, huge privilege. And then they had a photo printer too. It was basically like a camera drum that you would write code into. So this was actually the first time I ever did coding. And this was just to program a printer that would print an emulsion with fonts on it. And so you would, it was like font equals and size equals whatever. And you could sort of do a rudimentary layout. You could do like centering and some other stuff. And it actually sent a photo perfect lettering set into a negative drum. And this at the time was so much more crisp than the best laser printers. Like at the, at the time, if you looked at a laser printer up close, there would be little jaggies that go up and around the curve of a letter form. They still do this. But this stuff was, you know, like perfect. It was film. There was no aliasing whatsoever. No, um, so it was great. So anyway, a lot of people would use this to just do like uh, my bowling trophy ad or something, but we could do whatever we wanted with this Photostat printer and uh, the, uh, the other stuff. And so right after David Koresh passed away, I made a label with the production camera, school equipment, went to Kinko's or whatever copy center exist which will also probably one day uh, disappear that's going to happen you know we're going to lose the copier places very soon probably <laughs> we're losing the coffee that we've already lost the coffee shops we're going to lose the copiers the copiers anyway i uh, made a bunch of clear labels that said is he the son of god or just chimney dust on it and there was a picture of david crush's face and i then went to with the help of a friend went to the grocery store where the photo 
developer booth was and asked if they had any spare film rolls. And they had hundreds because they hadn't gotten rid of the film rolls for that day, meaning that that one grocery store's film processing unit received hundreds of orders in a single day of people dropping off film. <laughs> How often does that happen now? You know, So basically, like they would spend a week filling up their film roll the same way you film up, you fill up your camera, but they would fill, fill it up and never be able to look at a single, single camera shot for like a week or maybe two weeks while they're filling up this roll. Have no idea. And subsequently, if you compare photography from that time to this time, there is an unawareness with people in those shots that is much less posed and a lot goofier and much less well composed too because you're a better film camera operator now being able to see exactly what you're shooting too on the screen but a lot of times you wouldn't know what the fuck you were shooting and so these camera shots were very weird but anyway that's what people would do they just would drop off their film and, and there was like a hundreds of jobs that day so they were able to give me a hundred film cans and i think this was even before recycling <laughs> or something so they were just going to throw them out anyway I mean, film canisters, you know, the black or clear plastic film canisters that would hold the film when somebody would drop it off to protect it from light, often with a shared gray lid, gray or clear lid. And I took those film cans and covered each one with one of the labels, the Izzy God or Chimney Dust, with his name. And then I went to our... Uh, went home to our fireplace and with a spoon put uh, ashes in each uh, vial. So, it was a, and on the back of the label it said a sample of David Crush's, um, a sampling of David Crush was the uh, joke on the other side. And a very good friend of mine and I went through town that night and we owned, we owned Denver that night with my David Crush uh, cans. Be, the whole city loved it. It was hilarious and we got free everything free food free coffee and it kept on going up and we were just going out for coffee we weren't even going out for drinks because we were like 17 and just having a huge party with it people were laughing i would go everywhere and i just would walk up to people outside uh at co you know coffee shops and bars and restaurants people would be sitting outside and i just would walk up and i would sell them a uh, david crush file five bucks and you would get you know david crash vial with a bunch of chimney powder on the inside and it was like here's a sampling of him <laughs> so he just burned down a night or two ago and he'd been cremated and i'm going around as a 17 year old uh goth kid too very funny so i at least have eyeliner on it sounds so silly <laughs> but uh, the whole thing fit anyway i was a goth kid and that whole night we got everything and the, it culminated with just more and more free stuff like in one and there was this one moment where we were like giving away david crush vials my friend and i my friend nate and i and we got a free bus ticket we were suddenly on a bus and uh we're like where is this going and somebody goes the star trek convention <laughs> there was a star trek convention that night and we went into the Star Trek convention and walked right out of the front door and just said, like, we would like to get in. And we showed them the David Crush files and they're like, get in free. And they came, and we just got in free to Star Trek convention. We walked around and there was all this merchandise stuff, like weird Star Trek things or whatever kinds of stuff is at Star Trek conventions. And we would just trade for goods with the uh, re remaining vials of uh, David Crush ashes. And the whole city loved it. It was a total hit, and there's a uh, Rocky Mountain News article or a Denver Post one that it starts off with, "Remind me to re uh, remind me to uh, not forget the name Ethan Persoff, the 17-year-old," and it just sort of—it's a very funny, funny article that they put in about me doing that. So that was the beginning of an identity part for me of knowing to make these uh, these stunts, and they would become smarter, smarter pranks smarter objects and I would either take credit for it or I won but uh, 
that was cool. That, I, that was last year that I was in school. And then I went to Chicago and had some curious problems making friends. And then it worked out with uh, comics. But the whole point that I'm trying to make with tonight's sort of like meandering is this is what memories feel like when you think back to them <laughs> and how wonderful and pleasant that is. And a lot of things that I'm remembering about these experiences are non-profitable locations, non-profitable locations, and how much these places and these things and these moments, like that night out in Denver, was so much fun because it was just bumping into with the David Crash containers, containers, including like the weird Star Trek convention and everything. But and we weren't making any money selling the David Crash ashes. By the way, it wasn't about making money. It was funny that it was five bucks. I think uh, we gave about as much money away that night to friends or to homeless people or whatever than we made. So you know, it wasn't even about that. Money was an accident, but not the goal. That night was a success because of all the different places we could bounce around and do this stunt. And right now in most cities, there isn't a lot of variety of those kinds of places. You can pretty much go to restaurants now or <laughs> clothing stores or, or bars. But the other cheaper stuff, those things are just disappearing. Bookstores and coffee shops, definitely. Radio shacks and now game stops. Know, weird sorts of places so I am pleased to see that there is some attempt to change this by making a very public uh, show of just how much wealth is destroying the country by taking things away to make money you know you can either burn down a, uh, a cabin and uh, sell its ashes wealth for wealth's sake is not really a good use of those resources. Don't make ashes of something. Don't burn something down to benefit yourself. You know, keep it around. You can either burn down the David Crash and sell his ashes. <laughs> or you can keep David Crash around and, and uh, have better memories. Better memories. Better memories. <laughs>